Welcome to the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. Enjoy a drink with us while we tell you some wild stories of the brutal and bizarre variety. Please keep in mind some of our stories might be upsetting to young or sensitive ears. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes, bizarre occurrences, and get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. To lighten things up, we like to end our time with a chaser. Alrighty, Mom, what story do you have for us? I am going to be talking about David Joseph Carpenter, otherwise known as the Trailside Killer. Well, I don't think I know about that one. Yeah. What are you going to be telling us about, Declan? Today, I'm going to be talking about the Roswell incident. And to go with my story, I have the Roswell cocktail. Nice. Just half empty because we had technical difficulties. Right. So this drink consists of three ounces of Malibu, three ounces of orange juice, three ounces of cranberry juice, and one splash of pineapple juice. I put a little bit of lime in there to brighten things up too. Nice. All right. Let's Give test this try. again. Mm, just as good as before. Right. It's not it, is, <laughs> it is a really good drink. I do like it a lot. All those juices yeah. balance out the sweetness of the Malibu, so it makes it true. Makes it drinkable. Well, tell me all about Roswell. Just north of Roswell, New Mexico, rancher Mac Brazel found a piece of debris on his ranch. The debris consisted of metal, rubber, and some small wooden beams. The debris was scattered over a square mile on his property. Thinking it was some random trash, Mac pushed the debris under a bush nearby and forgot about it. On July 5th, Mac made his way into town when he learned about the recent UFO sightings in the area and immediately connected the dots. On June 26th, media nationwide had reported civilian pilot Keith Arnold's story of seeing what became known as a flying saucer. Uh, on July 4th, United Airlines Flight 105 reported seeing multiple flying disks. So for about a month before... Uh, uh, Mac found the debris. There was multiple UFO sightings over Roswell. Okay. So on July 5th, Mac brought some of the debris to the sheriff's office for examination. Sheriff called uh, Roswell Army Airfield, which assigned the matter to Major Jesse Marcel. Razzle took Marcel to the debris site and the two gathered up more pieces of rubber and tinfoil. Marcel took the material home on Monday night, and on Tuesday morning, July 8th, Marcel took the material to his base commander, Colonel William Blanchard. Blanchard reported the findings to General Roger Ramey at Fort Worth Army Airfield, uh, also known as FWAAF. Gen General Ramey flew the materials that were flown to FWAAF immediately. Marcel boarded the B-29 Fortress and made flight. 
On July 8, 1947, Public Information Officer Walter Hout issued a press release stating that personnel from the field's 509th Operations Group had recovered a flying disc which had landed on a ranch near Roswell. Many rumors regarding the flying disc became a reality yesterday when the intelligence office of the 509th Bomb Group of the 8th Air Force Roswell Army Airfield was fortunate enough to gain possession of a disc through the operation of one local rancher and the sheriff's office of Chavez County. The flying object landed on a ranch near Roswell sometime last week. Not having phone facilities, the rancher stored the disc until sometime as he was able to contact the sheriff's office, who in turn notified Major General or Major Jesse A. Marcel, the 509th Bomb Group Intelligence Office. Action was immediately taken and the disc was picked up at the rancher's home. It was then expect- inspected at Roswell Army Airfield and subsequently loaned by Major Marcel to the higher headquarters. And all that was a quote in the newspaper uh, for Roswell. This was quickly recanted later that day, and in place, officials claimed the wreckage came from a weather balloon used in Project Mogul. Project Mogul was a project of the United States Army's Air Force, and the project was a top-secret project that aimed at developing a system of high-altitude balloons carrying sensitive listening devices to detect sound waves generated by Soviet nuclear tests. The project was developed by the United States Army Air Force in the late 1940s and was led by a team of scientists from the New York University and the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. It just so happens that they were using these balloons near Roswell, New Mexico. There was two sites uh, fairly close to Roswell that they were using these in. So, On July 9th, the Daily Record released a newspaper stating harassed rancher who located flying saucer. Sorry he told about it. Mm. Yeah. But the strange thing is that a few days before this headline came out, he was arrested by the military police and interrogated. And a few days after the interrogation, he purchased a brand new pickup, quit ranching, and moved to Alamogordo, New Mexico to start a new business. That's very interesting. Yeah, a little suspicious. Yeah, uh, convenient. So decades later, Roswell radio announcer Frank Joyce recalled contacting Hout by telephone to verify the release. To which he said, Walter, don't run this story. If you do, you're going to be in trouble. They'll ship you out to Siberia. Frank also reported that Mac had admitted to him that alien bodies were amongst the debris. However, this interview was not released because the radio station had received calls from the FCC and U.S. Senator Dennis Chavez telling them not to release it. In a later interview with UFO researcher and nuclear physicist Stanton Friedman, Jesse Marcel described the debris that was collected. He claimed that the metal was light and as thin as the foil in a pack of cigarettes. However, you couldn't bend it, dent it. Even a sledgehammer would bounce off of it. Wow. He was quoted as saying, It was not anything from this earth. That I am quite sure of. Being an intelligence officer, I was familiar with just about all materials used in the aircraft and or air travel, 
and this was nothing like that. It could not have been. Friedman interviewed a few other witnesses, including military officials and civilians, before determining that the government had covered up a crashed UFO in Roswell. Friedman claimed that officials had covered, discovered alien bodies which were short in stature, had a large head, large eyes, and small appendages at the crash site. However, many years later, the Air Force released a paper called the Roswell Report in which they claim that the alien bodies that were discovered were in fact test dummies for a 1950s experiment testing paratroopers over New Mexico. But this doesn't make much sense since the Roswell incident took place years before this experiment, and the dummies were 6 feet tall, however witnesses claim that alien bodies were no bigger than 4 feet tall. That's a big difference. Yeah, it doesn't really make much sense for that to be a rubber paratrooper. No. Personal pilot to Major General Lawrence C. Craigie, the chief of engineering at the supposed Air Force base that was housing the UFO and alien bodies, claimed that he flew Craigie to Roswell shortly after the news of the crash. A few hours after landing in Roswell... Craigie flew directly to Washington, D.C. to meet with President Truman. Hmm. A few months later, Craigie was promoted to Air Force Chief Director of Air Force Research and Development, where he started Project SIGN, the first official military project investigating UFOs. Oh. So it makes me think that he saw something at Roswell that got him promoted (laughs) Yeah, maybe. And so testimony from the daughter of Air Force Colonel Hunter G. Penn states that her father was tasked with enforcing an informational blackout about the little bodies. He was authorized to use weapons and physical force to discredit any information about this. Oh. And this is even more suspicious because all reports and evidence from January 1947 to October 1947 were burned and destroyed. So we may never really know what happened in Roswell, New Mexico. Right. Wow. What's the explanation of burning the evidence? Like, was it an accident that it, like, it was in a warehouse and the warehouse burned down, or? They were ordered to burn it, but no one knows who ordered them to. That's convenient. Wow. Yep. Huh. Very, a lot of convenient things in this story. So in your research, did you see any pictures of the supposed weather balloons that were actually being used in the area? Yes. And from all the pictures I saw, they weren't made out of foil. They were made out of like a clear rubber material okay is there any way that a crashed weather balloon would look similar to something that would resemble a saucer you know uh so i'll put up a picture for the uh the project mogul balloons and then i'll also put a picture of the debris that was collected however it's been debated that that's the actual debris or not. Oh, so, okay. A lot of people think that it was swapped 
and right after the the statement recanting that the government had discovered a ufo mm. they made the guy who said that take pictures with the thing it looks like tinfoil and like okay. sticks so i don't know okay i don't know interesting yeah i don't think we're ever gonna know nope but you know what we do know we know what happened to your guy so why don't you tell us about yes. that okay i will tell you about david carpenter We're going to do a little pre-thing about talking about parks and stuff. So experiencing the outdoors by hiking or jogging can be an amazing experience. Sometimes enjoyed solo, sometimes with friends. For me, neither, because I don't like hiking. Many people partake of these activities on a daily basis, but in Northern California, it was also a deadly expedition for several people. Victims were being brutally attacked and shot for several months in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Police even started warning the public about spending time in public parks. They didn't want to find any more victims of the person they started calling the trailside killer. Let me tell you about the trailside killer. David Carpenter. Okay. He was born May 6, 1930 in San Francisco, California. He was raised in San Francisco by his mother and father, but it was not a happy home. He was physically abused by his father, who was an alcoholic, and his mother was not kind and nurturing, but she was domineering and controlling. He was socially awkward with a severe stutter that continued into adulthood. His parents forced him to participate in activities that he didn't like, such as ballet and violin. He was regularly teased by other children for his speech, the ballet, and the violin lessons. If that wasn't Wait, enough... So, sorry to yeah. interrupt, but did you know that uh, a man who does ballerino is called a ballerino? I did not Instead know. Instead of a ballerina? Oh, yeah, I did not know. Yeah, did I. Interesting. So, as if the violin, the ballet, and his stutter weren't enough, and his abusive dad and mean mom and all he also was a bedwetter and he liked to torture animals nice very typical early signs of serial killer yes yeah yeah as a teenager he was incarcerated for one year after he molested two of his younger cousins so he's not a nice guy to anyone yeah he's gross mm -mm. After being released, he continued molesting children, but was never prosecuted for it. At the age of 25, he got married and subsequently had three children. In 1960, Carpenter stepped up his criminal game and committed his first known attempted murder. He lured a woman into the woods of the Presidio military base in San Francisco, where he attacked her. He tied her up with clothesline, stabbed her, and hit her with a hammer. His attack was stopped when a military police officer intervened and shot him. He survived the shooting and was arrested. His victim also survived the attack. The following year, he was convicted of assault with intent to commit murder and assault with a deadly weapon. 
He was sentenced to 14 years, but only served about half of that sentence being released before being released. During that prison sentence, his wife divorced him. Shocking. Yeah. A prison psychologist diagnosed Carpenter with sociopathic personality disorder. Not long after being released, he went on a little crime spree in which he racked up charges of kidnapping, assault, robbery, and rape of multiple women. Real fucking cool guy there. Yeah, he's real nice. He was arrested after a few days and was awaiting court when he decided to break out of jail with a few other inmates. But he wasn't on the wrong run for long. He was quickly caught by the FBI and ended up back in prison for his crime spree in 1970. Nice. So. Gotta love a dumb criminal. Yep. After serving only seven years, he was released on parole, first going to a halfway house and later going back home with his parents. In 1979 and 1980, he escalated his crime and his crimes and graduated to murder. His first believed victim was named Etta Kane. He murdered and assaulted her, uh, and her body was found on a hiking trail in a park near San Francisco in the August of 1979. Etta died from a single gunshot to the back of the head. That's why we don't go hiking. We don't want to find shit like that. Right. That's, that's where you find bodies. You... I don't want to be the victim. <laughs> on hiking I also trail. don't want to find the victim. So I'll just yeah. not hike. <laughs> or in like all <laughs> half of the law and order shows, a jogger in the early morning is who finds the, the body. So yeah, just <laughs> I won't go hiking or jogging. Yeah, just avoid it. Yeah. In October 1979, he attacked and stabbed Mary Bennett while she was jogging in another park near San Francisco. Her murder wasn't solved for decades, but was finally attributed to Carpenter through DNA. In March 1980, Barbara Swartz went hiking and didn't return home. Her murder body was found the following day off a small trail. She had been stabbed numerous times. Although it was never conclusively attributed to Carpenter, she is believed to be one of his victims. In September 1980, Richard Stowers and Cynthia Moreland were going hiking together. Unfortunately, they didn't return home, and their bodies were not discovered for two months. They, Fuck. Yeah. They had both I, been I shot in the be head. I the guy that found them. That's a no. smell you'll never forget. Yep. In October 1980, Carpenter attacked Ann Alderson, who was also jogging in a park. Her dead body was found the following day with multiple gunshots to the head. A month later, Shauna May was supposed to meet a date at a park um, in the parking lot they were supposed to meet, and her body was found two days later in a shallow grave next to another body. The second body was that of Diana O'Connell, who had disappeared a month before. Yeah, both women died of gunshot wounds to the head. It's kind of weird that he's switching between gun and stabbing. It is. But I think he's fairly disorganized in the stuff that he does. Like, Uh, He's like, forgot to bring his gun one day and is like, well, fuck it. Could be, could be. And he changed guns. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Uh, In March 1981, Carpenter struck again. This time he approached a man and a woman hiking in a park south of San Francisco near Santa Cruz. 
While showing them a gun, he told the woman, Ellen Hansen, that he was going to rape her. Ellen tried to stop him, and he fatally shot her. He also shot her hiking companion, Stephen Hurdle. But Stephen survived and was able to give police a description of the killer. About two months later in 1981, Heather Skaggs went missing. She was looking to buy a car from a coworker. The coworker told her not to tell anyone where she was going. Big red flag. Hey, come over, but don't tell anyone you're coming over. But she told her boyfriend that she was meeting Carpenter about a car. Police questioned Carpenter and realized he had re- he resembled the man described by Stephen Hurdle two months early- earlier. Upon researching his background, they found his previous convictions. <clears throat> Carpenter was taken into custody May 1981. Good. Two weeks later, Heather Skaggs' body was found in another park between San Francisco and Santa Cruz. She had been murdered with the same gun as Ellen Hansen. Okay. Yeah. Not all of I'm Carpenter's... Joseph David Carpenter or whatever the fuck his name is. David. He owned that gun. (laughs) Well, he was a convicted felon. He's not supposed to own a gun. That's what everyone says. I know, but (laughs) it doesn't stop him from owning one. I know, but there were different calibers of firearm used on some of the different victims. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it. I think um, because of, they were able to link him to certain things, but they never found his gun, but they found people who sold him guns. So they, they linked it that way. This is the early eighties. I don't know if we would get a conviction based on some of this information now, but okay. Um, not all of Carpenter's victims were killed using the same gun, but police were able to connect him with having possessed multiple firearms, specifically the calibers used in the murders, although not all of those weapons were located. So basically what happened was they they found a guy who illegally sold him a firearm, like I believe it was a 45 and a 38 that he used, or it might've been a 44. Um, But they found somebody who said, yeah, I, this is the gun I gave him and it was this caliber and this is what it was like. And so they were like, well, we know you had something of those. So. I heard Caicos. Yeah. Caicos is, Caicos is outside the room (laughs) and she's thinks it's really cool to, she wants to come in. She does. (laughs) In April 1984, Carpenter was on trial for the last two murders of Heather Skaggs and Ellen Hansen. This trial was held in Los Angeles because Carpenter's lawyers were able to get a change of venue based on all the publicity sound surrounding the case. He was subsequently convicted of these murders and sentenced to death. Four years later, Carpenter stood trial and was convicted of Murders for Richard Stowers, Cynthia Moreland, Shauna May, Diana O'Connell, and Ann Alderson. This trial... So after he had already been in prison, they yes. slapped some more some yes. more on him? Okay. So he was convicted of two... The, the last two murders, he was convicted of those and sentenced to death. 
while he's in prison, they were like, hey, let's make sure that we charge him with everything else. So they charged him with all the stuff that was had happened the year before. <laughs> Just kept, kept kicking him while he's down. It's like, yeah, I, I, yeah. He thinks he got away with it for four years and they're like, yeah. You got to pay up, pay the piper, bud. Right. Yep. Uh, the second trial took place in San Diego because, again, all of the publicity. And it all happened in San Francisco area, but San Diego, who, for those of the, uh, you listening who don't know, it's several hours south of San Francisco area, but there had been so much publicity about all of the women that had gone missing and the hikers and the parks around San Francisco that the defense attorneys were saying, no, we need to get a change of venue. So they. They're scared someone was going to Jack Ruby him. Uh, yeah. Although he had been sentenced to death, Carpenter uh, was never executed. In 2019, the governor of California created a moratorium on the death penalty. At the time of researching this case, Carpenter is still incarcerated and alive at the ripe old age of 92. I I really want to know what it's like for elderly people in prison. Like, oh, that's such a weird thing. You don't see a lot of like eighty year olds in prison, no. but I've never been, so maybe there are. But I, you, just some guy in a wheelchair, and I don't know. Yeah. Well, I've covered at least two killers in Oregon that are sitting on death row, and they're in their late eighties early 90s somewhere in that range so it's so weird that these people get put on death row and they sit there for years it's like decades how big how big is this row what's taking so long i know we can whip them out like right isn't it just a flip of the switch now or something they got rid Uh, of the injection well they won't do it in california at all they're not doing it at all so he's permanently just in prison I think you should be grandfathered. If you if you still if you were on death row before the memorandum, you should still be yeah. on death row. Yeah. You just shouldn't have put any more. Right. Whatever. Well, do you have a an uplifting story that's going to Take away all this sour taste from these scary people. I wouldn't say uplifting, but more Uh-oh. interesting. Okay, Past, interesting. It, so this is coming out a little bit after the, this news came out. But uh, the Pentagon officials claim that an alien mothership could send ships to Earth and draft research paper. I picked that this chaser because we were doing Roswell today. Yeah. uh, Officials at the DOD claim it's possible for aliens to send small probes to our solar system and even to Earth on missions similar to the ones conducted by NASA, according to research report draft. Draft was written by Sean Kirkpatrick, the director of the Pentagon's All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, and Abraham Loeb chairman of Harvard University's astronomy department. Last week, it centered on the 
physical constraints of unidentified aerial phenomena and a claim that a mothership already in the solar system could send probes to Earth. Okay. I, I have I'd, I'd big like question. to say, though, that... Okay, what's your question? Well, no, finish what you were going to say. You'd like to say what? Mine's unrelated to this. Oh, okay. Kind of. So my question is, did they really need to do a research study about it? They must have information that we don't, because what is there to research? <laughs> There's no subjects there, you can look at. They're saying it's possible that a mothership could come down into our atmosphere and deploy ships. No one said it wasn't possible. Did somebody say, no, that can't happen? Because how could you say, no, that can't happen? You don't know. Well, it, it's like the Tic Tac video. Let, if there's a mothership, it's already here and it's in the ocean. Very well could be. So why are they doing a study on, yes, it's possible? Well. I don't know. Okay. I I just find it interesting that this came out right about the same time as the information about the bank runs and all that. So Yes, it's the ooh shiny, look at this, don't look at that. Yeah, 100%. Like, oh, the Pentagon. They see big words, Pentagon and UFO. Right. And mothership. And it's like, oh, I need to see that article right. instead of the one that's like, SVB shutting down and people can't pull their money out. It's right. Like, that I want to read about the UFOs, not the damn bank. Right. So, Ooh. yeah. Common. Ooh, shiny. Yes, it's a new So shiny, what is your sure. chaser? So my chaser is a news article that I found on the Good News Network. And it is appropriate for the weather that we have been having here. You haven't had much of it, but we've been getting hit by snowstorm after snowstorm, which is weird in mid-March. But uh, this article is about how snowplows have been given names. So in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, I think I saw that. Yeah, Madison, Wisconsin, Scotland, <laughs> oh, they're voting and Minnesota. On it? <laughs> yes, there was voting. <laughs> Um, but I, I saw the names for the votes. <laughs> yes. So, so here are the there. names that I thought were particularly funny. Saltimus Prime. That's funny. Snowby Juan Kenobi. The Brinestone Plowboy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brinestone Plowboy instead of Rhinestone Cowboy. Spready Van Halen. What's... Okay, yeah. And Sp sc Scoop, there it is. Scoop, there it is. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Oh, so uh, I thought it was fun. I like that. Yeah, I saw something uh, similar to that, and it was they they the town just got a new snowplow, and they were asking the town to name it and everyone oh. voted and so there was like a list of 20 names with like the amount of votes next to it i was just trying to find it but I, nice. I couldn't find it but that's the issue with instagram is you see something cool and it's just gone it's gone forever, forever. in an instant yes unless you know who posted it it's gone right yep all right well i think that brings us to the end of our pretty short episode i'd say today yeah. 30 minutes a little but shorter 
enjoyed well, nice. hearing about your weird trail Seriously. killer guy. Yeah. Thanks for sharing about the uh, weather balloon incident. <laughs> All, right, All right, folks. We'll see you later. Thanks for watching. Love you. Thanks. Love you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening and supporting our podcast. We would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you want to give us a five-star rating, we would forever be grateful. You can contact us at our email via thebrutalandbizarre at gmail.com or on our Instagram at thebrutal underscore bizarre underscore boozy.